Last week we finished chapter 7, which means that we're going on to chapter 8. And if you remember chapter 7, we were talking about Ahaz and the fact that the king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom were conspiring against him. He was afraid, and so God sent Isaiah to sort of calm him down. And then we had the sign of Emmanuel being born. So now we're down to chapter 8, and what's going to happen here is we're going to talk about the coming Assyrian invasion and sort of update you on history. The northern kingdom, of course, separated from the southern kingdom after the death of Solomon. And the northern kingdom went into apostasy faster than the southern kingdom did. They're the ones that entertained Jezebel and that crew. Rehoboam, who had been given the northern kingdom by God, was afraid that if the northern kingdom continued to go down to Jerusalem for the feasts, that they would eventually reintegrate and would eventually become one nation again. And of course, that would mean that he and his dynasty would be out of business. So he did a couple of things. Thing one is he set up two golden calves, one of them in Bethel in the south, and one of them in Lachish or Dan in the north. And what I believe that they are trying to do is replicate the two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant because you have one at the southern end of the kingdom at Bethel and the other one at the northern end of the kingdom at Dan. So the idea is, as in the, the box, if you will, in the Holy of Holies, you've got two cherubim facing each other over the Ark of the Covenant, I am convinced that what the northern kingdom was trying to do was replicate that image over their country. The other thing that they did is they shifted the dates of the festival by a month. So they had all of the biblical festivals, all the seven feasts of God, but they shifted them by a month. So again, we now have our own places to worship. We now have the same feast, but we've shifted them a month so that you're not tempted to run down to Jerusalem to do those same feasts. Now, as we have said in Midrash, lots of times, the golden calf at the base of Sinai was done by people like Aaron with what I think were the best of intentions. God did not agree. But one of the things to notice is Aaron was not killed as part of that process either by the Levites or by the subsequent plague, which tells me that Aaron and most of the nation of Israel at the base of the mountain were mistaken as opposed to being in rebellion. Now, there were some that were in rebellion and the plague took those out. In other words, God examined the heart, if you will, and said, these guys are irredeemable. But most of Israel survived that incident because I believe they'd simply made a mistake. That same excuse doesn't apply to the Northern Kingdom because they have the story of Sinai and they recognize God does not approve of this kind of stuff. So at that point, they have gone into idolatry, but they are still following the feasts, although they're shifted 
and they're still following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that very quickly goes downhill when you get people like Jezebel and so forth who come in and wind up leading the entire nation way into idolatry. So anyway, as we've gone through the first seven chapters, God has been grumpy with Judah, Jerusalem, and Jacob, which is to say Israel. He's going to continue to be grumpy with them, but the southern kingdom is not formally in idolatry as the northern kingdom is. They still have the tabernacle, they still celebrate the feast and all that kind of stuff. So they have not changed the form of the worship. God is still grumpy with them because they've done some other stuff we talked about in the first several chapters. But one of the things they are not particularly doing is idolatry. So chapter 8, Isaiah is speaking now. And then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shahal Hazbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So you remember in the previous chapter, Ahaz was very much panicked because Damascus and the northern kingdom had allied against him. So now very much in the same way that Ezekiel did physical stuff to show a prophecy, so Isaiah is also doing physical stuff to show a prophecy. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason in the son of Remaliah, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. In this case, the river is the Euphrates, and the Assyrian kingdom was in the area of what is now Turkey, Iraq, and points north and east from there. The Euphrates River flows through that area. So the idea is, all right, instead of being happy with what you have, which are the waters of Shiloh, you lusted after Reason, the son of Remaliah. Now, Reason is the king of Damascus, and Remaliah is the king of the northern kingdom, so his son is his military commander. Remember, he's the guy that showed up in chapter 7. And because you're not happy with the way I do things, God is basically saying, we're going to, in fact, let you drink from a fire hose, which is the Euphrates, which is the Assyrian kingdom. Let me pick it up at 7 and again. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what's going to happen is Assyria is going to come down. And it's going to happen in several stages during the reign of, I think, three different Assyrian kings. So it does not all happen at once. 
And when they say it's going to go down into Judah, up into the neck, what he's saying there is Judah is not, in fact, going to be swept away. The water is going to come right up to here, and then it's going to recede, which it does. The Assyrians come down, they come to Judah, they besiege Jerusalem, but they never take it. Jerusalem then becomes a vassal or a tributary state. They pay tribute and so forth to them, but they are never destroyed. Now, Assyria has an imperial policy that when they conquer a people, what they do is they take all of the people, they pick them up, and they move them somewhere else. And then they replace them with people from somewhere else. If you conquer two peoples, what you do is you just swap them, which means that you've got to keep conquering people so you've got people to swap with. And what that does is it disconnects the people from the land. So by the time they get their orientation in the place where they have been exiled to, they have forgotten who they are, and so they don't rebel. And you remember in the Torah that every 50 years, the land gets its people back. So there is an intimate connection set up by God between the people of Israel and the land that belongs to them as tribes. And what the Assyrians do by breaking that connection causes the northern kingdom who goes into exile to essentially forget who they are. Hence, they are the lost tribes because by reason of this transplant policy, they lose their heritage and they lose their identity. What the Assyrians did is move replacement people in, and those are the Samaritans, some of whom are still there to this day. I was reading today on, I think, Aish, and apparently there are still some 800 Samaritans in Israel, and they steadfastly claim that the Holy of Holies is in Shiloh, and that's where everything should be. They have their own version of the Torah, Samaritan Pentateuch. They have their own books of Moses and all that. You remember during the Exodus, which we're reading about on Shabbat right now, one of the things that God says is when you go into this new land, do not inquire about their gods. Don't ask how they worship them. Don't ask what their festivals are. Don't have anything to do. In fact, I want you to go through the land and I want you to tear down their totem poles and I want you to remove their altars. Because in that time, it was believed that gods were territorial. And so when you went to a new land, what you would do is you would talk to the locals and find out who the local gods are and what do you have to do to get along with them. And so what God is saying to Israel is, when I take you into this new land, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to have anything to do with those gods because I'm going to flush them out too. So when the Samaritans got moved into Israel by the Assyrians, the Samaritans show up and say, okay, who are the local gods here and how do you worship them? So what they found out was the local god here is Jehovah and here's the book and this is how you worship him and so forth. So the Samaritans moved in and picked up on the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, got a copy of the Torah, and they said, okay, well, the first place was Shiloh. That's where the first temple was. That must be the holy place. And they just cranked right along, and for all intents and purposes, they look like Jews. The Jews don't believe that they're Jews, just like the Jews don't believe Messianics are 
correct. But that's what happened to the Samaritans, and that's why the Samaritans read the Torah. That's why the Samaritans do all of the stuff that Israel would have done. Now, slight change of subject, territorial gods. I don't believe that people back there were particularly stupid. One of the things that you will notice in the Torah, it specifically says that if one of your cities goes into idol worship, what you will do is you will diligently inquire, and you will find out if that city has gone into idol worship. If it has, you will destroy the city, you will kill all its inhabitants, you will not take any of the spoil, you will cover everything up and build a mound there, and it will never be built on again. The only reason I can think of for that kind of instruction is because there is something territorial there. And if that spirit is able to cause an Israelite city to go into idolatry, then what you do is you just take that pimple, you excise the pimple, kill everybody there, cover it over with concrete, and never see it again. Because that piece of ground is dangerous. That's not scriptural, that's Johnnyology. Do with that whatever you like. So we're in all the way now to chapter 8, verse 9. I didn't plan to say all of this stuff. Sorry about that. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. This be broken, you peoples, be shattered. I am unsure how to read that. It can mean two things as it's written. Thing one is it can be future, where at some point God is going to call the nations to come against Israel and he's going to shatter them. Perfectly fine reading of it. It could also be in the spirit of Jeremiah. Remember when Jeremiah was prophesying, Judah, who was the only one left at that point, was pointing at the temple and saying, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, that's going to be our refuge. As in, the presence of the house of the Lord will guarantee our safety. And Jeremiah says, "Is no, that isn't true. Because for you, the house of the Lord has become as a hideout for robbers. You flee to it after your crime with the intention of escaping retribution for your crimes, but not with the intention of repenting. So for you, that will no longer be the house of the Lord, which is protection. So in that same spirit, verse 10 again, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. That can be something that Israel is saying as they are faced with Assyria. In other words, 
what Israel could be saying is, all right, all you people, strap on your armor and come against Israel. You're going to be shattered and you're going to be broken because God is with us. What Isaiah is saying here is exactly the same thing as what Jeremiah said in his time. You guys say that you're depending on the covenant, but you don't understand that the covenant works both ways. When you are walking with me, the covenant becomes a protection for you, and what you are just saying is in fact true. God will fight for you and shatter your enemies. But when you are not walking according to the covenant, in other words, or you are not keeping your part of it, then that becomes a lie because you're forgetting the downside of the covenant. So I can see that either way. I'm not sure how that's meant, but my suspicion is that it's in the Jeremiah context. You guys are sitting here with the temple of the Lord in your midst, and you're saying to the Assyrians, you bring it on. God's going to fight for us. And what Isaiah is saying here is, mm, no, that isn't going to happen. Verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. We will see this again much more explicitly in Isaiah 29. And we will see it also as we go down through chapter 9. It will be said again. But the idea here is God, when they're getting ready to go into exile, what he does is he seals the book. What he does is he removes wise men and he removes seers so they are navigating blind. So bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples literally means close the book. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So the Lord is hiding his face from the house of Jacob sort of gives credence to the Jeremiah-esque interpretation that I gave you. 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancer who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Remember in the Torah, it is strictly forbidden to deal with necromancers, which are people who communicate with the dead. So what's happening here is the people of Israel are inquiring of occult sources instead of doing what is necessary to be able to inquire of God. And the reason that they are not hearing from God is because they are not walking according to the covenant. Remember good old Saul, king number one of Israel, right? Saul, by the end of his reign, is quite mad. He's gone quite insane. And one of the things that happens to Saul as Samuel tells him that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you, you are not going to prosper, your line will not continue. At that point, essentially, Saul loses his connection to God because Samuel is no longer available to him as a prophet. So when he gets ready to go up against probably the Philistines, I don't remember right off the top of my head, he doesn't have any scouts, which is what a prophet would be for Israel. David had spiritual scouts, if you will. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord would tell him, don't move until you hear the marching in the balsam trees, right? Saul has lost this. So what he does is he goes to the witch at Endor, and he has her speak to the spirit of Samuel. That kind of thing is what's going on here and what Isaiah is speaking against. Pick it up at 19 again. 
And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, which is to say, no light. To the teaching and to the testimony. What we're talking about there is the word of God. The reason that they are tempted to go to mediums and necromancers is because they have lost the legitimate connection to God that they should be getting through prophets. So, 20 again. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against the king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they shall be thrust into thick darkness. This goes back to Deuteronomy 31.16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. Notice back in Isaiah, God hiding his face from Jacob. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. In other words, if you had been faithful, God, none of this would have happened. And what God is saying through Moses is the reason that that's going to be happening to you is because you have broken faith with me. I have hidden my face from you. Just as we said, the temple of the Lord will become a den of robbers in Jeremiah's time, or... Here, they will call and say, the Lord is with us, and you know, all you guys strap on your swords and come ahead because God's going to be with us. And in that case, it isn't going to work either. So, back to Isaiah 8.20. To the teaching and to the testimony, go back to the word of God. And if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. The light is not shining upon them. And then we get down to verse 22. They will look at the earth, behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So the whole point here is having abandoned the word of God, they will be thrust into darkness. So they will be like, for example, Saul, who loses his spiritual connection to God and is lost. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. When the Assyrians come down, the first ones that get taken out are Zebulun and Naphtali. And if you remember your territory, Zebulun and Naphtali are in the north and the west of Israel, which is the way of the sea, the coastal highway that goes down the plain of Sharon and so forth, from the Euphrates rivers all the way down to Egypt. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, that's that road, and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In other words, for a time, the Galilee is going to be overcome by the nations. Galilee is in the northern kingdom, so when the northern kingdom gets sanded off and gone to this day, Galilee becomes a place that is under the feet of the nations. 
Ah, one other thing. Back to 8.22. Let's read it straight through. 8.22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Nathali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That's really all one thought, even though it's a chapter break. Verse 2. All right, now we're talking about gloom. Remember, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. They have multiplied the nation. They have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is obviously a messianic passage. We sing this all the time. It's one of our standard songs. But what he's talking about in context is a time when Israel will be restored. And by the way, as we're reading this, think about it two ways. Way number one, the way you learned it in Sunday school. It's talking about the Messiah. To the Jews, it's also talking about the Messiah, but this guy Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. So if you look at this as a Jew, you say, Messianic passage. That guy Jesus didn't do this. Therefore, he isn't the Messiah. What we see as Christians is that there's going to be two advents that this part is going to be during the second advent when he returns. Which, by the way, is what I believe. I'm not casting any doubt on any of that. But just understand that your Jewish brothers and sisters, when they come to this, do not see the same thing that you see. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is very clearly talking about Yeshua coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what we see. The Jews, they don't see two comings. We do. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of reason against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians in the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this anger has not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out. Verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. 
Remember this process of exile. I'm going to take away the prophets and the seers. Well, in this case, the prophets are lying and the wise are leading people astray. So God says, I'm going to take them away from you. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. Notice that that his hand is stretched out still keeps getting repeated. In order to understand what's going on there, you want to go to, I believe, Leviticus 26. What God says in verse 14, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you do not obey all my commands or break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic and so forth. So a list of things that will happen. But the place you want to go down to is verse 21. 21 is then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins and I will let loose the wild beasts against you and so forth. So what God is saying here in Leviticus 26 is my chastisement upon you is intended to get your attention and turn you around. Like when you take your two-year-old who is defiant, you pick him up and you swat him on the bumper and that, oh, he's serious. Okay, so what God is saying is if you walk contrary to me, I'm going to start doing all this stuff to you. And if that does not get your attention as I intend it to do, then things are going to get really bad. So back now to Isaiah 9 and verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So what Isaiah is saying is Ephraim has just been hammered by the Assyrians. And instead of turning back to God and finding out what God would have them do and repenting and returning to the covenant, what they have done is they have shaken their fist and said, we will rebuild better than before. And so what God says in Leviticus 26:21 is after I have nailed you the first time, if you continue to walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. You see how the two passages play together? What Isaiah is doing is really referring back to Leviticus when he's saying, if you guys don't listen, it just gets worse and worse and worse. We'll pick it up, Isaiah 9:18 next time. 